You're listening to the Youth for Life podcast with Michelle Baum, director of Why for Life at Lutherans for Life, where we prepare youth to be gospel-motivated voices for life. Be sure to stick around after today's live recording of our Chats for Life program to find out how you can be live too on our next Youth for Life podcast. Our guest speaker is Reverend Keith Haney, who is the Assistant to the President in Missions, Stewardship, and Human Care in Iowa West, has been there for two years. He also, before that, served for 12 years as a mission executive in the Northern Illinois District, and before that, 13 years as a parish pastor in a variety of places, including Detroit, Milwaukee, and St. Louis. So we want to welcome him tonight to talk to us about the topic of critical race theory. And I am very excited about learning about it. I hope you guys are too. I'm gonna go ahead and hand it over to Pastor Haney to lead us in prayer, and then we'll have our opening question. Sounds good, thanks, let's pray. Dear Father, we give you thanks Lord for this gathering as we sit down and learn more about critical race theory and how it impacts our lives and also impacts the ministries that we will be called to do and even our impact our lives in schools. Help us to look at this and try to figure out the best way as a Christian to respond to some of the very tough issues and tough situations that come up in this in this topic. We, we would pray, Lord, we approach this with grace and understanding and also thinking about the people that is being impacted and also is impacted by critical race theory. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. So if you can tell me, just a show of hands, how many of you have run into or have encountered language, critical race theory language uh, on your university campus. Okay. Any phrases in particular that you've heard? We've just talked about it in my intro to ed class, like as far as curriculum goes. So I guess it wasn't in a social science class type of thing, but just like kind of the challenges it can present in a classroom. Sure. Yeah, excellent. And as a future teacher, right, at a, at a university where there are lots of future teachers, that would definitely be something to bring up. Uh, any other examples? We've had a couple like church talks at my church on the Christian way to respond to it. So I've heard about it in that sense. And also through our university, like we had to go through diversity training in our orientation, which I think stemmed a lot from that. It wasn't like too terrible. It was just like if we acknowledge that, you know, racism is bad and that everybody, including people with disabilities, should be treated equally kind of a thing. And then obviously we're right now we're having a lot of things similar to CRT that are being brought up, but that's a lot. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Discussions at the at the higher levels, right? Administrative levels and, and how the school will be run. So yeah, excellent. Anyone else? Okay. All right. That gives uh, Pastor Haney maybe an idea of, of your familiarity with it. And of course, we've all encountered it on social media and maybe heard references to some of that language. So I'm going to turn it over to Pastor Haney. And again, thank you so much for teaching us this evening. Oh, no problem. So critical race theory, as I'll kind of give you kind of an overview and kind of tell you some of the things that are influencing it, because you mentioned some of the issues that are that is actually moved beyond just the actual theory of critical race theory has kind of infiltrated several other disciplines in our system right now. And on top of it has also been politicized. So that hasn't helped critical race theory either. But it comes out of the school of law. Is where its, its, its foundations begin. And it was a theoretical model using critical theory, actually. So, you, so critical race theory comes out of the critical theory philosophy, school of philosophy. And CRT scholars came up with this because they believed that there was systemic racism that's kind of info, inculcated our, all of our culture. And their basic philosophy, to kind of give you kind of a, a Reader's Digest an analysis is, they believe that because the people who designed our systems were landowners, which would be white male or white females, that the laws they put in place were to protect landowners. So you could say that they put laws 
laws in place to protect white people if you want to take it to the level that some people take it to. They designed it because they said, you know, we have to need to look at our system and figure out which of our systems and the laws that we have in the books right now are disproportionately impacting people of color. And how do we begin to look at that? And they also were frustrated by the fact that since the Civil Rights Act was signed in 1971, I believe, they saw very little progress in the system uh, in terms of racial, racial equality being pushed through the system. So they designed critical race theory to kind of get at what are those things in our system that are just not being addressed. Some of the critical race theory founders are people, you'll hear names like Derrick Bell, Kimberly Crenshaw, Patricia Williams, Cheryl Harris, Mara Matsu, and Richard Delgado. They are the scholars of this movement. Kind of give you some idea. Any questions just on that part? Because I know that that may be a lot, and I want to take time to clarify if you guys have questions just on that. Wow, you guys are really easy. <laughs> so I have a question. Remind us, what when did that start? What, critical race theory? I don't have the exact date, but I know it came out of that, that, that law school and it pretty much stayed in the, in the school of law for a while until it kind of ebbed its way into modern day culture. And you're starting to see Kimberly Crenshaw has taken, and I'm going to talk about her specifically, but she took critical race theory and she added more pieces to it. <laughs> what's, what's actually being taught in, taught in schools is kind of a combination. Some of it's critical race theory based on the idea that there are people who were privileged or landowners, I could say, who the laws protect them over anybody else. But they've taken that and applied it now to transgender issues, to LBGT issues. And so what you're getting in school is kind of a mishmash of things. And I'll talk about that too. You're also getting in the schools now, and we're going to spend some time on this too, a little bit tonight, anti-racism, which is taught by Abram X. Kendi which is totally different than critical race theory, but it kind of comes out of the foundations. And you probably heard of D'Angelo and her book, White Fragility. Some of Beverly's D'Angelo stuff really is the, the, the ha white hatred that you're hearing coming, out of, coming into schools, because her philosophy is, if you are resisting the fact that you're a racist as a white person, then you are, your white fragility is pushing up against your, your reality. You need to own that. And so you hear a lot of her teachings that are being kind of pushed into the the hatred of white people in the school thing. So <laughs> there's a there's a lot there and it's not all critical race theory, but there's some elements of it in all the things you're hearing in schools right now. Does that make sense? All right, I'm gonna show you a picture and I'm gonna have you so think about critical race theory this way. So if critical race theory is trying to figure out what are the things in society that are, are kind of against the norm for people of color, I want you to kind of look at this picture and tell me what you're seeing. I'm going to show, share my screen. All right, can you see that picture? All right, so as a, as a critic, think of this as a critical race theory person asking the question, this picture impact people of color? Look at this picture. Tell me what you see that you've noticed that maybe seems out of line or maybe not complimentary of people of color. Tell me what, describe what you're seeing. People of color bowing down to white person. Okay. What else? The white person, his stance seems like, like reading his body language, it looks a little authoritative. Okay. Think about what stereotypes may be playing into this picture that you're seeing that you think of before. So the person of color is all of all of them. They're athletic or supposed to, you know, they're getting ready to start a race. I think that's what they're supposed to be doing, right? Right. Any other observations? The white guy's wearing nice clothes. Okay, yes. Now, you may be surprised, this was an ad for a, computing, a computer company. <laughs> you might not have picked that up on what this is, but it was about computing and performance and the power of this computing software. Now, I want you to look at this same picture and we're gonna go through this with critical race theory lenses and ask critical race theory questions. 
And here's the first one. Is this good for people of color, this picture? Why not? Because it's making them look more submissive towards someone of a different color. Right. Perhaps if it was someone of the same color, it would possibly work, but I really don't see how this would work in a computing ad. <laughs> you see what it's for, it's, in, it's um, Intel Core 2 processing. That's what this was for. It's an awful ad. <laughs> <laughs> and I think this ad was, if I'm not mistaken, like 2014, I think this ad came out. All right, here's another question to think about. How does this, this picture portray people of color? As people who are harnessed for the use of white people. Right. It also shows them all like they all look exactly the same. Yeah, there's no no, no individuality there. Right? Yeah, so it's like they're like a whole stereotype that there's no difference between anybody. Right. And here's one more for you. What conclusions seem to be made about people of color from this ad? And you, you touched on a lot of those, that they're all the same. They're performance-based. They're submissive. So you can see how critical race theory, if they're trying to get at, are there things that we assume by our systems or even by in education, critical race theory says, how do we critically look at how the person who is receiving the information might might take it versus what you intended to be. So they didn't intend this to be a racist ad. I'm pretty sure they didn't. But from the eyes of someone of color, you could see how they would take this to be this is an insensitive ad at best and, and a bad choice of, 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 of a way to lay an ad out. Now if this ad was all white people, would it would it make a difference? If everybody in the ad was white, would they make it? Would it? Would it? Would it convey the same message the person was trying to convey? No, because there wouldn't. If they were all white, it wouldn't make a difference, and like the race wouldn't matter. Maybe right. this just bad art on like the shadow department. Yeah. So <laughs> it have to do with like computers. Right. Um, but if, or if like if they were all white, or if they were all black, like race would have nothing to do with it. Right, you take the race out of it, right. All right, so I'm gonna kind of talk a little bit more about some misconceptions about the topic of race. You, you'll hear in critical race theory, race is not a biological category, but a social construct. You hear that word a lot with critical race theory, it's a social construct. And, and what that basically means is we don't, that, we sh that bi biology should not play into the whole racial conversation. And here's something else to think about saying that color doesn't matter. And we probably heard people say in discussions that I don't see color. You might've heard people say that. And it's interesting when you say that, because I think when we say that we kind of ignore the individual person. So that's probably, not, I understand where the response comes from. People who say that probably genuinely are trying to live out the understanding of Dr. King when he said, judge people by the content of their character, not by the color of their skin. And so we've gone so far to say that I, I want to make sure I do that by not recognizing color at all. That's really dangerous in a lot of regards because you end up not understanding the differences in people because of their race or, or their background. So for example, I was working with a congregation in the Chicago area and they wanted to celebrate Cinco de Mayo. So what they decided to do was they invited all their Mexican, all the Mexican uh, members in the community over for a special celebration at their church guess what they serve for the people to eat? What would you serve at a Cinco de Mayo service? Tacos. They didn't show, they did not share tacos with them. They actually gave them brats and sauerkraut because they were Lutheran church. <laughs> and so, because they, they probably were trying to be, you know, sensitive to what they like, they, they, try to change the culture of the people they were reaching out to. So sometimes in our ignoring color and even culture, we're becoming sensitive. You can see how that can play out. So 
racism is a, it's not a black and white issue, but it affects everyone in the society. What we're discovering now as we look at this whole idea of race today is it really does impact not just a few people, everybody in society. So we have to be aware of that. Everybody's dealing with the, the trauma of what happened with the whole George Floyd incident. And we're all trying to do our best to figure out how do we navigate through this, this culture war that we're dealing around with race. I'm gonna show you a video from Abram X. Kendi, and he's gonna to try to explain what anti-racism is, because that's another part, another piece of this puzzle. And I'm gonna let him explain it because it's best to hear it in his own language. X. Kendi, and I'm the author of Can you hear now? How to Be an Anti-Racist. And this book really seeks to show that the contrast is actually not between racist and not racist, but the contrast is between racist and anti-racist. What I think many people who self-identify as, as not racist don't realize is that really over the course of, of history, nearly every group of people that we actually consider to be racist have also identified as, 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 as not racist, whether that's white supremacists today or segregationists of, of yesterday. And so really, each of us should be striving to be anti-racist, not necessarily striving to be not racist, because really that's a term primarily of denial, and it's a term really that doesn't have much meaning. But it does mean something to be racist. When, when someone says that there's something wrong with a racial group, they're being racist. When, when someone says there's nothing wrong with any of the racial groups, they're being anti-racist. When, when someone supports policies that create and reproduce racial inequity, they're being racist. When someone supports policies that yield and create racial equity, they're being an anti-racist. And these aren't necessarily identities or, or fixed categories or tattoos. Literally, what we're doing in each moment determines who, who and what we are in each moment. And people change from moment to moment and, and from year to year. And I think we should identify people based on what they're saying and doing because no one ever becomes racist or even anti-racist. All right, I'm gonna give you guys a chance to kind of unpack that. What, do you, what did you hear him say? What does it mean to be a racist according to Abram X. Kendi? It can be as little as supporting a policy that others view as unequal or I mean, like it doesn't require an act on your part, but even a passive, a passive support rather than a speaking out against. That's what I heard. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that, that's good. So what does it mean to be anti-racist? According to Abram X. Kendi. What do you guys think? I heard him say like actively saying there's nothing wrong with any of any racial groups is an anti-racist act. That's good. This is important because you'll, you'll hear this language today and it's not really clear as to how they try to define it. So let me try to unpack some more of this for you. So according to Abram X. Kendi, you got to realize Abram X. Kendi is dealing not so much with He's dealing with changing in policy. So if you try to compare Abram X. Kendi to D'Angelo and white fragility, he doesn't agree with D'Angelo on a lot of things. She, she tends to align more with him, but he, did, he kind of just ignores her. Because for Abram X. Kendi, what, he, what he's trying to do right now is he's trying to, to deal with inequities in policy. So he's really focused on policies. He's even trying right now to push the, the new administration to set up an anti-racism department in government that would go around and check out anybody who's involved in any, any company, any church, any organization. And if they're doing any policies that they would be considered racism, that this particular oversight board of the government would, I think it's like do, punish, do penalties for people that are being racist and make them do policies that will change their policies. So he's focused specifically on changing of policies in the government. Does that make sense? So his whole thing is, and when you hear him talk now, he really tends to, <laughs> to get racism, anti-racism confused a little bit because it's hard to define 
what he's talking about. So I'm going to kind of go a little deeper. So for him, it's biological racism is a combination of racist policies and the ideas that causes and maintains racial inequities. So it's not about biological differences. It's not about one race being superior to another. It's really just about the policies that are being implemented on people. So an example would be this. A 1991 survey revealed that 50% of respondents thought that black people have more natural physical ability. So he would say that is an example of a belief that may be racist, but as long as you don't make policies based on that, that doesn't make you, that makes you, it makes you a racist if you have policies based on that, that thought. Your answer is if you don't have policies based on that thought, <laughs> if that makes sense. Another one is a general example of the belief that black people are naturally good at improv improvisation, decision making, which makes them good at basketball, rap, jazz, and bad at astronomy, chess, and music. So th that's some of the things that Eric McKinney believes about anti-racism. Any questions about that? All right. So, so I how you have a yeah, go ahead. So mm -hmm. In both of those cases, he would say you could still believe those things and not be considered racist. You just you would be a racist, racist right. if you acted on them, that you had a policy that was based on them. Right. Okay. So here are three steps to become an anti-racist. Learn what racism is and how it evolved. Be aware of subtle racist ideas that you might have unknowingly supported and weaken them. And start, start supporting anti-racism rather than racist policies. Again, those things are kind of hard. Number two gets kind of iffy as to what that really means. So, you know, that, that, that kind of gives some idea of what the background for his book is. And so you start to see some of that in schools. And it's also being tied to critical race theory, too. It's kind of anti-racism and critical race theory kind of involved in those two things together. The next thing I'm going to show you, and we'll get into the response to this intersectionality, because intersectionality came from Kimberly Crenshaw, who said what the civil rights movement did was it addressed the black male and gave him rights, but did not consider the black female. And she says the women's liberation movement was focused on the white female. But she would say there, that gender and disabilities were not included in those acts and that not progress forward. So I'm going to show you a video to help you understand what intersectionality is, and then we'll talk about it. What is intersectionality? Intersectionality is a way of understanding social relations by examining intersecting forms of discrimination. This means acknowledging that social systems are complicated and that many forms of oppression, like racism, sexism, and ageism, might be present and active at the same time in a person's life. Everyday approaches to building equality tend to focus on one type of discrimination, for instance sexism, and then work to address only that specific concern. But while the career of a young, white and able-bodied woman might improve with gender equality protections, an older, black, disabled lesbian may continue to be hampered by racism, ageism, ableism and homophobia in the workplace. Intersectionality is about understanding and addressing all potential roadblocks to an individual or group's well-being. But it's not as simple as just adding up oppressions and addressing each one individually. Racism, sexism and ableism exist on their own, but when combined, they compound and transform the experience of oppression. Intersectionality acknowledges that unique oppressions exist, but is also dedicated to understanding how they change in combination. The roots of intersectionality lie within the black feminist movement, with legal scholar Kimberly Crenshaw originating the term. Crenshaw felt that anti-racist and feminist movements were both overlooking the unique challenges faced by black women. She stated that legislation about race is framed to protect black men, and legislation about sexism is understood to protect white women. So simply combining racism and sexism together does not therefore protect black women. Intersectional theory is now applied across a range of social divisions and also to understandings of domination, such as those associated with whiteness, masculinity and heterosexuality. Intersectionality is not only about multiple identities and it's not a simple answer to solving problems around equality and diversity. 
It is, however, an essential framework as we truly engage with issues around privilege and power and work to bring them into the open. Intersectionality means listening to others, examining our own privileges and asking questions about who may be excluded or adversely affected by our work. As importantly, it means taking measurable action to invite, include and centre the voices and work of marginalised individuals. So what you're hearing probably mostly in schools now is intersectionality because you hear all the buzzwords, privilege and understanding people of disabilities and sexism. And so intersectionality is kind of taking critical race theory and adding the transgender issues, LBGT issues, and putting together all those pieces to try to figure out how do we make sure we hear, as they would say, the marginalized person who's being ignored. And you also hear part of the critical race theory idea of, are there policies that leave out the, the transgender black handicapped female. So that's the language that you're hearing a lot more of probably in our school system. Any questions on that one? All right, so how that would look in kind of a, a kind of these, these programs. So you look at, you can see cisgender, first generation university student. These are all intersectionality cubes that could define how people look at certain kind of people the Muslim immigrant, full-time employee, the married, lower middle class, HIV positive person. I mean, can you see all these different things stacked upon each other to try to deal with how you see people? And you almost lose sight of who people are by adding all these different things on top of people. So what is actually being taught in schools? There are some ideas that there is this idea of white bias being taught in the school in, in, in Connecticut, for example. In Manhattan Institute, they're teaching this book called Not My Idea. If you go online, you can actually just read the hits, have the book, see the book on YouTube. I don't want to read because it it's like nine minutes long, but it really does try to help. It's, it's geared toward second graders, I think, talking about little Johnny has two moms and someone else has two dads. So you they try to normalize the the alternative lifestyles in our society. And this book really is being taught in a lot of public schools and in 15 different states to young kids at a very early age. So they're, they're actually sexualizing our kids at a very early age in schools. Any questions on that so far? And you may have heard about Loudoun County, Virginia, where there were some issues going on as being a hotbed for CRT. Um, they were passing something called the Equity Toolkit, uh, given to children as educational supplement material to promote the idea there's inherent racism as a bedrock of the American culture. So they are teaching that there's there's a whiteness problem in our in our society and our society is systemically racist. So some people say as critical race theory is kind of a it's a part of it, but they're focusing on one part of critical race theory saying that, that society has some flawed backgrounds and they're focusing a lot on that issue in our schools. Here's what one teacher said I thought was fascinating, who actually was in, a, was in an article, and articles down at the bottom of the screen there. Kenneth pointed out that critical race theory is not in the curriculum, but it's a part of how teachers in a district teach. Kenneth said, we, teach, we, tell our we tell our teachers to treat students differently based on color. Every problem is a result of white men. Western civilization is, is racist. And Kenneth pointed out that these ideas are ripped from Kimberly Crenshaw's book, Critical Race Theory, the writings that form the movement. He's a teacher in Indiana School District. So Kimberly Crenshaw's idea of critical race theory is, is, is really prevalent, which goes back to the intersectionality piece that I showed you earlier. Any questions on that? So was he, was he arguing against this or was he supportive of it when he's saying these things. He was against it, but he says, so when you say critical race theory is, is in this curriculum, it's not, but what's being taught is Kimberly Crenshaw's intersectionality based on her book. So it is it's her book Critical Race Theory. So if you say critical race theory is being taught, yeah, Kimberly Crenshaw's version of it, but probably not the school of law version of critical race theory. All right, let's see. So what's the Christian response? I think that's important we talk about that. Vody Bochum is a guy who's been talking about critical race theory for years, and he says, be careful of critical race theory and the gospel because it has all the trappings of a religion. 
It had its own cosmology. It has its own saints. It has its own liturgy, its own law. It has all elements of, of religion. And a lot of those things may be very subtle. It makes it rather attractive to people, to religious people. So he says, be careful because it's, it's appealing to the Christian and large churches getting caught up in critical race theory. And that's a very dangerous thing to get into because it's not from a Christian perspective. So I, one of the things that, that churches kind of fall into a trap of is looking at Luke chapter four, and they turn Jesus into this kind of a rebellious, he'd be wearing a Black Lives Matter shirt, and he'd be marching down the street, and he'd be protesting. And sometimes they use Luke chapter four to kind of point out, look at how radical Jesus was. And here's what Luke chapter four, verse 18 and 18 says. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has appointed me, anointed me. He has sent me to preach good news to the poor, to release, to proclaim the release of the release of the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to liberate the oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. People focus on three lines in this, to proclaim release of the prisoners, to recover sight to the blind, to liberate the oppressed. And they see liberate as Jesus saying, is it look, Jesus wants to get rid of all oppression and that verse really is not about liberal liberation theology, even send people free from prison. It's really, if you break it down, it's talking about Jesus setting people free from sin. And that word freedom, as referred to in Luke, refers to forgiveness of sin and not freedom from prison. Recovery of sight to the blind refers to spiritual blindness. And so Jesus isn't promoting a new kind of social justice. He's talking about a kind of religious freedom that we have in the Gospels. So when people use that verse to say, look, Jesus was a radical troublemaker, it's, it's not accurate in the terms that people use it for. Any questions just on that part? I like, if you're gonna talk about justice, it's important to see justice from what is God's perspective. In Psalm 103, it says, the Lord works righteousness and justice for all those who were oppressed. So what does that mean in terms of God's justice? The psalmist points out that God's is, God is gracious in character. God does show grace to those who are oppressed. And showing grace to the oppressed means, of course, demonstrating a righteousness and a justice. When you talk about God's justice, it's always measured with righteousness. And talking about God's slowness to anger, God's patience, and what's missing in our society today really is, is this culture of forgiveness. And in Psalm 103, a God will not always chide. He will not always keep it keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. As you guys have noticed, we're kind of in this cancel culture mindset where we don't forgive people. And if you tweet something when you're 25 and you're 45 and it comes back to haunt you, there's little forgiveness for anything we make mistakes for. I'm just thankful that I didn't have tweets when I was your guys' age, because the stupid things I said when I was a teenager <laughs> would get me in so much trouble today. But the church really has the responsibility, I think, of teaching this culture about forgiveness. Because we need to understand that we're all going to make mistakes. We're all flawed. And if we don't see each other as flawed human beings who make mistakes, there is no grace in us and no forgiveness in us. So Vody mentions the fact that we shouldn't just, should we just reject CRT kind of out of hand? He says, be careful of that. Because CRT's philosophy may sound appealing to Christians who are bent on social justice. And that's really a big thing that a lot of young people are involved in is that idea of social justice. But he says its tenets are not guided in scripture. And he warns that against the temptation of taking some of the elements of critical race theory and disregarding others. So I always tell people, if you wanna look at critical race theory, it may be helpful to look at the things that critical race theory is trying to address. And maybe even identify some inequities, but don't use this language and his principles to deal with those. So for example, it, I was in Minneapolis this past weekend and that in a community called Golden Valley in Minneapolis, outside Minneapolis, Minnesota, there was a time where they could not sell houses to black people. Now that was a, a redlining law that changed and critical race theory might've pointed out that that was, a, that was a law that was inequitable for people of color. And as a Christian, you deal with those laws, but you don't use critical race theory to figure out what principles you use to address it. So you can take some of the findings of critical race theory and deal with those issues, but I would not focus on critical race theory as a method to help racial justice, if that makes sense. But he also, yeah, go ahead. Real quick. So would you say that 
you know, when you're talking then about racism or you're, you're wanting, combating racism is good, right? I mean, racism right. is, is a sin. So when we speak of racism and when we speak of how to uphold every single life, what I think I hear you saying is that we don't want to use terms like intersectionality and, and, and other CRT catchphrases Rather, we want to point them back to the, the words of Christ. Uh, exactly. The, the words that are, you know, are true about all people and, and why we, we don't want racism, right? Why we want to, to love and uphold and affirm every life. Correct. Because, because those terms are loaded with all kinds of problems. Because we have, we have to acknowledge that those lifestyles are acceptable and and those some of those lifestyles are not acceptable so how do you deal with that by acknowledging and giving value to things that we know that we should be addressing as believers so so Bodhi warns again he says this quote i love this quote he says a few years from now people are going to be be fed with critical race uh, critical race theory and there's going to be a backlash I worry about the fact that there is going to be a rise in actual white supremacy because of the rise of critical race theory. I worry about the fact that there's going to be a rise in actual racism because the way we're dealing with this race now, if we just ignore the racial problems in our country and say, like I've heard some in the church say, there is no problem, we fixed racism back in the 60s or early 70s, and ignore the fact that there's still pain and, and, and dispar uh, disparaging I mean, inequalities in our society, we're gonna raise a bunch of angry people on the other side. But if we keep calling white people white supremacists and racists, then they're gonna stop, no matter what they do, they can't change the opinion of people saying that about them. You're gonna make them into better racists because they're gonna give up on the idea that they can be different and they are different. So you gotta be careful of how far we, how far you push this on people. So can you tell me when he wrote that? It's on, he, he has a ton of a blog and he has a ton of stuff on his blog. I'm not sure which blog post that came from. But, but Vody Beecham, yeah, it's very recent. Vody Beecham has a, a huge website of resources. He's done a ton of podcasts on critical race theory. I found it in an article. I'm not sure what, what article it was from, what year. But he makes the point, we need to listen to people. In critical race theory, if you want to know the truth when it comes to race and racism, you have to be willing to elevate black voices. You have to listen to the voice of the marginalized. And this is what people are talking about in church today, right? How do we do that? How do we listen to the voice of the marginalized? So I said there's four key steps of how you become a good active listener. Listen attentively. As a husband, I don't always listen to what my wife says. I want to fix the problem. <laughs> so we have to, if you're talking to people who are trying to tell you something, we got to start listening and not talking, or even try to justify what we hear to make ourselves feel better. Stop talking, that one's hard. You always want to fix things, jump right in. If you don't understand, ask for clarification. If you talk to somebody, you don't get what they're saying, kind of ask them to kind of reframe that or explain it to you. And then just kind of repeat back what you hear people saying. Good active listening qualities. Okay, I have a question for you. If you go sure. back to the previous slide, one this more. one, yeah. So, would you would you agree with that definition? Would you agree with his comment? You know, as Christians, yeah. I just love to hear your your thoughts on that. Is, is the church asking those questions, Alice? What are you asking? Yeah, yeah. And and is the church asking those questions? And he says, in critical race theory, if you want to know the truth, when it comes to race and racism, you have to elevate black voices. And, and would you say that that is something that we should seek to do? And is this it what, is, yeah. Yeah, and what people are talking about in church today. I don't know if they're talking about it in church today, honestly. I think the church has tried to move on from the whole George Floyd racism issue. And so I hear some churches trying to address it, and I've got a chance to talk to some of them about it, but most of them just want it to go away. Okay. Because people feel guilty and they don't know what to do with that guilt and that pain. Don't mind me asking, how have you seen any churches effectively have good conversations about this? Or like, what have you seen churches do? So this last weekend I was in Minneapolis and they invited me in to talk about critical race theory, but they invited their whole community to come. 
And so we spent all day Saturday talking about race. We, we had, I did critical race in the morning. We had a panel discussion with black leaders in the community and, and politicians talking about this issue. And I think that congregation walked away have a, having a better understanding of some of the issues that are impacting their community because they sat and listened and asked questions about what's happening in our community. And they really want to know what can we do to solve it. And they walked away with the response of, I can make a difference. I can go into my community and I can go visit and talk to people and sit down with people, get involved in local things I can, that I have gifts and talents to do. And I think they have a plan to go do something about racism in their community because they ask the critical questions of how can I come alongside people who are marginalizing? What can I do to help? Thank you. Any other questions? I have a question. Um, sure. So you, you talked about not um, using the terms of critical race to discuss racism. And what about when you're talking, or like when I'm talking with other white people who have embraced critical race theory and are, are being good anti and kind of are, are using that language? How do, how should I bridge the gap between, because I'm not, I shouldn't be using it. Do you know what I'm asking? I do know what you're asking. What I tell people is, don't focus so much on the language of critical race, but focus on the issues. What are the issues you're trying to you're trying to resolve through through critical race theory? You know, if, if your passion, say, is schools, how do I help my local school with, that's underachieving among marginalized people? Or if you're trying to deal with poverty, try to figure out what are the issues that your community is facing, and how can you come alongside and deal with those? Because I think critical race theory, what it does is it alienates people because it makes white people bad and the system racist. And okay, if the system's racist, how do you change a racist system? Is is it blowing the system up or is it about finding where the inequalities are in the system and trying to deal with the issues? So for example, you may have heard that the president just signed, is is, is buying, I think he's spending $2 million on buying crack pipes and, and drug paraphernalia. So when I heard that, I was like, this is ridiculous. But then when I listen to people who deal with drug addiction in poor marginalized communities, they say one of the things that's really important is that these drug addicts have clean needles because that's creating even more disease in that community. So why don't we just sort of agree with the, the drug kits, so to speak, it's part of a bigger part of the solution, but how do I get to the point of not using the drug kits anymore, but they're actually getting some help? So how do we look at the entire picture and figure out how do we fix the issue, the bigger issue? And maybe some of it are things I don't agree with, but it may be part of the solution. That makes sense? Yeah, thank you. So I always love the Eighth Commandment because the Eighth Commandment is really about justice. When I looked it up, I actually did a sermon on this just recently. And this commandment was about about not taking the Lord's name. I mean, I mean, not sorry. It's a, it was about um, not bearing false witness, and that was really a legal term that was in the, in especially in Jewish tradition, about making sure that you did not give false testimony in court about your neighbor. And so, as a Christian, we can teach the community what justice is according to God's understanding of justice, and that means how do we look at our neighbor, speak well of him, defend him help him keep his reputation and, and kind of put everything in the kindest way. And that's being a good witness to the gospel and also to justice. And one of my favorite verses is Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female, for we're all one in Christ Jesus. Kind of reminding us that Jesus tore apart all the different things that were dividing his culture, his community. Jew and Gentile were at, at odds, slave or free were at odds male and female because females were considered second-class citizens but he says none of those classifications none of those stereotypes matter because we're all united under one banner which is the, which is christ's death and resurrection so the most important question is how do christians respond we need to embrace all human beings as having value because they were created by in the image of god i think that's really important for us to remember in all this discussion and we have to ask the question, are we in danger of glossing over our pain, over pain to avoid uncomfortable topics? And I think that's where the church has to step up and, and acknowledge that we don't like dealing with uncomfortable topics. 
But if we're gonna do respond to the issues in our community, we have to address those uncomfortable topics. And then the other question is, how do we care for the marginalized? The church used to be really effective at being the vehicle that cared for the marginalized. How do we do that today? Because if we don't do that, then it falls on, on critical race theory, the government to take the responsibility that the church normally has the compassion to deal with. Any thoughts on those, those three things? Right. Yeah. So this is something that I've noticed just as like pastor's daughter is that when, as far as like the church glossing over uncomfortable topics, I think a lot of it is that we're afraid to highlight one race over another. Cause I feel like when, how you said, like we should hear more black voices and I'm, I'm not like, disagreeing or like agreeing like on one specific way, but I think a lot of the uncomfortableness comes from people who don't want to make it seem like being African-American is somehow put in like a higher estate or like somehow better. Does that make sense? Am I making it sense? I, I think you're saying, so we don't want to make sure that we, we degrade people by saying that they're, they're a needier group of people. Kind of. I, I think it's more just like how we don't want to like highlight one race over another. Cause if we like just focus on look how great all of these African-American voices are, well, where do we have that for white voices or, you know, do you see what, do you see what I'm saying? Right. I do. I think I do. I don't, I don't know if it's highlighting one race, race over another as much as if there are people in the community who are in need, how do you hear from them? It doesn't matter what color they are. It, it, it's your community. If you have a community of poor people, it's not probably just black poor people. It's a community of people who are poor in your community. How do you hear from those voices? If you're talking about race, if race is an issue in your community, then you want to hear from the people who are most impacted by the racial issues. The same thing would be if you were in Kentucky. I just talked to a guy from Kentucky today. He says the poverty rate in Western Kentucky and Western Virginia is, is terrible, but that those aren't black people. Those are Appalachian people. So how do you hear the needs of the Appalachian if you don't listen to their voices? So it's really not about highlighting one as much as uh, even elevating it, because usually the people you're talking to are not ones who are in a position that they would consider themselves being elevated as much as they're people who, sit, who are in need of help from the community around them. That makes sense? Yes, sir. Thank you. All right. So here's my prayer. My prayer is that Christians don't give up and get discouraged about making these connections. And it's not just black and white, it's any, any group that's been marginalized. Because I still believe that God has a power to transform us through living water, like he did the Good Samaritan, I mean, the, the Samaritan woman at the well, and help us forgive our sins and turn us into a new life and free us from the shame, guilt, and fear of trying to figure out this whole race thing in our lives. So, any questions? Have you had a congregation negatively at React? you've gone in and spoken about critical race theory or about relations between black and white people and the church's role and different things have you had people negatively negatively <laughs> how would you recommend dealing with that like how as a christian how as a lutheran how how would you go about a situation like that in a loving but effective way so i did have that situation i was at a church talking about this and a man there got there were two men in the crowd who got very very angry with this and and they said to me i am not a racist and i don't appreciate being called a racist <laughs> and i remember thinking to myself i didn't call anyone in this in this church a racist but they had been hearing that on television and been hammered by that that statement every single day and so what i did was i answered him i, re I respected his pain and saw his pain and let him let him vent his pain. And then I responded with respect to him and honored where he was at and tried to remind him that I don't think he is that way. And you got to listen to people who are hurting on both sides, I think. So if you're talking to people who are who are hurting, it's hurt on both sides, not just people of color, but there are white people who are hurting by all of this too. So you got to acknowledge people's pain and help them to deal with that pain. Thank you. I'm just curious, what do you see as the biggest um, areas of racial inequality, like in our nation today? 
Well, it depends on where you are. I think some of the ones that are really top of the list is education's a big one, especially in poor communities. The education system, and, it, and it's, here's the thing, it's not based on the amount of money going to the, to the public school. It's really the infrastructure around those communities. So if you, if you have, because you're pouring money into those, those, those failing schools, it's not about dollars. It's about the fact that they can't find grocery stores where the kids can get fruits and vegetables to help with the, the chemicals and the things that the vitamins they're buying needs. They have working moms who can't help with their homework. They may not have computers and internet access to stuff that most other kids would have to do homework with. So it's, it's an infrastructure problem, not just an education problem. Another problem is in most areas, crime, especially poor communities. Crime is a huge factor. So kids are trapped in, in poor neighborhoods with fa failing school systems and high crime. And another one is just right now, it's gonna be the economic impact that most of those families don't pass any wealth down to the next generation most passed down debt. So a lot of them don't have an opportunity to see advancement for themselves. So it's, those are three areas that I think are really critical that I see in most places. So would you then explain sort of the cause of those things, not as like our systems, but that this is the situation we're in because we only, you know, equality to black people as like in the 60s. And so we're like, still working through how to fix that kind of thing rather than our systems are inherently racist? So there, there are a lot of factors. So when I, when I served the inner city, if it was a high crime area, you would not find the better stores in those high crime areas. So you're not gonna find good grocery stores. You're gonna find grocery stores that charge way too much. They don't have the best food. So people can, and people can't afford to buy it anyway. So you have a problem of, you got to get on a, on a bus or some way to get to a grocery store that's, that's not in your neighborhood. You're finding that because the income levels are there's such poverty in the area that the parents have to work, if a single mom's work more than one job to make ends meet. So they're not home with their kids. They're not able to go to, to school board meetings to find out how their kids are doing in school. So the kids are basically raising themselves or they're being raised on the streets where the crime is. So you, you have this like entire breakdown of the family system in most of those places. And all those things just kind of feed into each other. And none of those things are, are being addressed because you're not having good, good grocery stores or good access to stores or markets or internet or computers. And all those factors are impacting how kids are doing and on top of a crime, so. So in some ways, it is, it is the policies of those local municipalities that are impacting it because they'll pass laws without doing the one critical thing of talking to the people who are being impacted by the laws they're deciding. So if, if you come in and say, like I had a lady I was talking to recently says, I want to give computers to all the kids in Africa. Man, that would really help those kids in Africa do well in school. I'm like, well, if you're in the bush in Africa, a computer won't do you a whole lot of good. <laughs> But it was it was a thought that she's like because they could really do a lot. Well, if they don't have electricity or internet. A computer is just a doorstop. So you know you need all the other things that go with that. And people sometimes will provide you one thing without all the other part that goes with it. So so as a follow up question to that, then so as you know, people who are life affirming, right? And you 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 said we address those things because we care about those lives, right? Every life is created by God and redeemed by Jesus. Every life is important. Uh, you also said that that very often we have these inequalities and, and things because we have broken family structures, right? Right. And so, so I guess, are those, do you feel that those things are being addressed? And if not, what can we do as a church to to address them or as for life people to address them. So, so what I tell churches is one of the key things you can do is be in your community and ask the tough questions. You know, what are the things that we can do to help? So I was talking to a lady on my podcast about the foster care system. And I said, how do kids get into the foster care system? Oftentimes it may be single moms who are working too many jobs. Somebody says to somebody at school, this kid's not getting food. He's not having support. So 
you know, they come in and say, we're going to take your child away to get your life in order. Well, the situation that that single mom got into of not being able to be home with their kids when they get home from school has not been addressed and she can never get her kids back because she can't change the direction of her life. Imagine the church coming alongside saying, we will help single moms by picking up the kids, bringing them to church, helping them with their homework, making sure they get a square meal a day so that we can you know, help take care of those families that can't take care of themselves while they get themselves off their feet. That makes Thank sense? You. Yeah, it does. Yep. I think, you know, I, I think we saw a rise in churches being willing to address, you know, you had mentioned earlier that that really churches need to to care for the marginalized and that that churches used to do a much better job of that, but but in a sense, in many ways, we rely on the government to do that now. Um, it's a conversation we've had in our household and with our boys as well, with our sons. So I, I think, you know, that that goes right back to it. The more, I think with COVID, we saw an increase in churches being willing to recognize that, that there were some real serious needs that families were facing during that time and maybe doing special things like having, having meals ready for people to drive through and pick up addressing those things. And so it's perhaps a mentality that was very recent that we could we could tap into, right? Yeah, I mean, because think about you could have uh, after school tutoring and like you said, drive by meals because there's people who love to who were teachers who would love to and we have space in our churches oftentimes to, to do those kind of things, even if it's twice a month or with a group of churches saying, look, we'll do a meal this week. You guys provide teachers, you guys provide a, a night out for moms to where she can just get some, I mean, just things that we don't think about for single parents, especially in this society, the church could be a wonderful blessing in those communities. I want to give time for students to ask other questions, but I have one more for you. And that is, you mentioned, Voody mentioned that, you know, there's going to be a backlash, right? And, and do you think that that has started at all? Yeah, because I hear it when I was at that church and the guy said, you know, I'm not a racist. It was the, re the result of hearing on every single TV show, every single news report that white people are racist, that white people are white supremacists, that, that you just hear it all the time. This guy, they were getting badgered, badgered and badgered during the whole George Floyd thing. Our systems are racist, which means they're, they're, you're privileged. And you kept hearing all those, those catchphrases that was directed right at, right at white people. And so, yeah, they got sick of hearing and they, you can't prove you're not a racist. How do you prove you're not a racist? <laughs> Other questions? I will say like my church is 100% white and we live in a relatively rural area and we're surrounded. We have a few communities surrounding us where there are black populations and especially issues with those communities with poverty and issues with school and education and i'm just i'm wondering if you like i think maybe in that conversation that you were talking about with that man who responded you know i'm not a racist but just in churches like that where we don't have congregation members who are African-American or really any other race, how do we start conversations about these things? Because I feel like, I know that so many of my creation members would feel the same way as that man. Sure. I, I mean, I can guarantee it. <laughs> and they're loving people, but they, you know, I'm just, how do you start these conversations? And I, I don't know, I guess sometimes I think it might be harder to bring someone outside in who's not part of the church because we don't, we don't have anyone who would, you know, be able to really start those conversations and be a representative to the community within our church. So, and I don't want it to feel like an attack on the congregation or, you know, something like that. So sure. how, 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 how have you seen that work? How would you recommend, like, what are your thoughts on that? So, so what I would say is you've seen people like sister cities, when you go places, our sister city somewhere in France, I would say, do that with a congregation of with people of color is create sister congregations where we did that in Milwaukee. Our church was mostly black. We were part of a church in West Bend and we got together, our men's group got together. We drove about an hour to be together on every other Saturday. And we built this really authentic 
connection with each other. And it was wonderful because they got a chance to, to meet us. We got a chance to meet them. We built some lifelong bonds, but we had this sister daughter, sister congregation mindset that really was a blessing to both places. So they got a chance to meet people of color. We got to meet white people and, and realize that white people were not the enemy for those who might've thought that. And it was just a wonderful blessing. So you could do something like that. Thank you. I hadn't, that, that sounds good. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for today's life topic. Check out whyforlife.org or email Michelle at whyforlife.org to find out how and when you can go live with us at our next Chats for Life session. Or join us next time right here at Why for Life Podcasts, where youth learn how to be gospel-motivated voices for life. Oh,